Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, Poddleters. In this episode, I speak to Jason Okandaya. Jason is a freelance journalist and he is currently writing his first book, Revolutionary Acts, Stories of Love, Brotherhood and Resilience from Black Gay Britain. We discuss the three things he wishes he'd been taught in school, namely social history, media and media ethics and public speaking. And we speak a bit or a lot, I'm not sure, (laughs) at the end about identity politics and how our attitudes towards them and the privileged discourse are changing, which I personally think is quite an interesting topic as adulting and the conversation I've had on here have centred themselves often around those things. And it's kind of interesting and refreshing, I think, when you start to grow out of or grow beyond a belief and start to think maybe that it's time for the conversation to kind of change. Um, And yeah, I hope you enjoy listening to that. I found it an interesting conversation and I still can't believe that we're on episode 101. Wow. Well, enjoy. And as always, please do rate, review and subscribe. Bye. And welcome to Adulting. Today, I'm joined by Jason Akundaye. Hi there, I'm Jason Akundaye. I'm a writer and journalist who is based in South London, and I'm also the author of the upcoming book, Revolutionary Acts, which is a social history of black gay men in London, specifically South London, because that's my beat. I love that. I mean, I'm first of all, congratulations on your book. Um, how are you feeling about that? Thank you very that? much. I'm very excited for it but I also know that it's like a huge responsibility because I think in some ways it's kind of the first book in its kind purely in terms of charting this kind of history and it's you know it's based in it's a story that's based in Brixton and it looks at the lives of six different black gay men in terms of their activism and their relationships in different parts and I think it's part of my mission to kind of really bring black British gay history to the forefront and tell a very different story of the nation to look at what was happening to, you know, certain demographics under the Thatcher years, throughout the 90s, throughout the early 2000s, because I think these are stories which are not necessarily marginalised, but just not even thought of as things that matter. And I mean, we know that these years were difficult for black people and difficult for queer people, but we don't think about those who are caught in the middle. I think that's so true. I guess it's kind of like, is revisionist history, I guess the right way of framing it, it's going back and like re-getting those stories that just haven't been given any airtime previously. Yeah, exactly that. And I'm really enjoying the process. I mean, I'm at the research, very early research stage still at the moment. And I think what I'm liking is that I'm just developing friendships with all of the men that I'm speaking to because I want to, you know, I want to be comfortable with them and I also want them to be comfortable with me. I don't want it to be a process where I kind of just come in, interview them and then go away and write the book. I want it to be like really involved and engaged and mutual. So yeah, it's, it's been a real blessing to my life, not just the book itself, but also the kind of networks and relationships it's let me, allowed me to form with a entirely different generation of men like me. I imagine that must be really emotional. Like what, how what is the response when you reach out to these men are they sort of like so 
excited to be featured? Do they feel grateful? Is it like kind of alien to them? What's their kind of reaction been when they've found out that you're kind of delving into this history that that, that, that they lived well, but maybe never saw? It's a little complicated. I mean, they're always very enthusiastic. I think in some parts, it's also almost an admission from some of them where they've said, you know what, we've been really bad at recording and sharing our own history. So it's kind of good that you've been curious and you've come in because there was almost a kind of fear that, you know, no one would have done it. Um, because, you know, I mean, a lot of these guys are, I mean, I think the oldest is 71 and the youngest is 51. And the history, it's been recorded in some places in like um, some archives and some, say, articles or interviews, but there's not been like a cohesive story told. And I think that they've all individually said, you know, they've been interested in like developing this kind of story, but no one's actually done it. And I think that it's good for them to, for it to be in the hands of someone who wasn't part of it, but has like a stake and interest in it and is able to really mutually um go through the memories and the history and really interrogate it and also challenge it in some ways because, I mean, the kind of circumstances that they were living in and the kind of organising that they were doing are actually vastly quite different to the circumstances we live in now. And what's great is that it means that they are, whilst I have so much to learn from them, they also have a lot to learn from me. And so it's a really mutually beneficial relationship. Because I obviously follow you, have your Instagram account that's, is it black and gay back in the day? Is that, is that what it, yes, and that's, that's going to be the same as, and so that, did that, when you started that, which was quite recently, wasn't it? Was it this year or? Yeah, was, that was that, in February. Was that just pers- like a personal passion project that you were like, I'm going to start, I really want in, to in, like find out about this, get into the archives and discover these stories. And then, then the idea for the book was sort of born out of that actually no so the book came first so i've been working on the book since last year honestly it was such a long process i don't think people realize how long it takes um i mean i didn't realize how long it would take i mean i got signed to my agency in june of last year i think and i started working on the book proposal a bit quite soon after once i established what i wanted to do i started to work on it properly from around september and i thought it'll be fine i'll get it done two months easy and god so many rewrites and having to you know structure it and figure out how you're going to bring together these people's stories and make it into like a cohesive narrative and figuring out how much myself I wanted to put into it and how I wanted to write it it was actually very tough it was really tough and it took like it took months um to develop and the archive actually happened quite randomly I mean I think initially it was um Mark Thompson's idea, uh, Mark Thompson is the person who I work on it with and who's one of the key people who's in the book. And he had originally set it up himself because um, he just had the idea in the shower. And I kind of saw it. I'd actually been thinking about doing the same thing, but I just hadn't ever put anything to action. I remember I had like a, a little, you know, when you create an Instagram account blank with, and you just save a name and I had it there. Um, and I basically messaged him and I was like, let's do this together, actually, because first of all, you know, I have the Instagram skills because I was slightly horrified about the way he was cropping things and sharing things on there. Uh, which we both laugh about and I was like I'm gonna make this a bit more savvy um so yeah we then launched it together and it got a really remarkable response I don't think we expected the response that it got and it also I think importantly showed like actually people are really interested in this and they're really keen on this and it's not just black people it's not just black gay people it's not just gay people it's lots of different people just found it really fascinating and thought that the stories we're sharing were really wonderful and they thought the pictures were really intimate and yeah, it then led to lots of different editorial opportunities for Mark and I, and it was it was just a wonderful project to have worked on, and it happened completely randomly. But yeah, I think some people assumed that the archive came first, then I had the idea of the book, but no, the book has been like ages in progress. 
Right, I see. Yeah, so I didn't know that because obviously I didn't realize until I think you announced your book that that was coming. But um, I think it is a really yeah, important thing to, and this is such a simple thing that you said earlier, which I think is really interesting. When we talk about like intersectionality, and actually, it's a really problematic part of what happens where we divide people into groups and forget how many like crossovers there are in that Venn diagram of like people are like oh you know, like someone who's queer and someone who's black and then never really, as you said earlier, recognises that there's so many instances in those little intersections that we have of like identity politics that actually have yeah. huge crossovers and then people don't, they seem to forget to look in the, what are the, what are the crossover bits in a Venn diagram called? <laughs> um, God, I'm not a math person. So I have, I have no, no idea. idea. But you know what I mean <laughs> from that description. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and I guess that kind of leads us on to it but tell me if I've completely misinterpreted if this what you what you were saying with your first thing that you wish you'd been taught in school which is about social history which I've interpreted to mean sort of the way that society identity and people interact but please tell me if I you meant a, a different thing no I think that's broadly correct and what I mean by that is that I think social history is also sometimes called a history from below and it looks at the lives of ordinary people and the you know effect that the state perhaps has on their lives um, and how they interact with each other and how they build communities and basically it makes me think about what defines a lifetime and it's not necessarily the activities of the state it's you know the people below who live under it and mm. I remember at school um all of the history, I just remember everything I learned was military history. I went to a really weird private school where they were just obsessed with all of the world wars. Um, I, it wasn't the bulk sum of what we learned, but it was royal history, military history. We would only learn about, you know, certain political royal actors. And I remember always, always thinking, why did these people come to represent the nation? And why do these people come to represent what we describe as, you know, British history or American history or whatever? And why can't we learn about the lives of, you know, people who have been on the ground? Because I think that if we were to take, if you were to look at your own individual life and the kind of life that you've known and the communities that you've been around, you wouldn't just define that by what was going on at the very top level. You'd define that by what was going on on the ground. And I also think that sometimes you get the most interesting stories there. Now, there's some bits of history that I really like that look at, you know, royals or wars or stuff like that. But I also just find a lot of it, I used to find a lot of it really dry and really boring and really detached. And it kind of made you forget about the fact that, you know, there were millions of people um, implicated in these um, different power struggles between, say, different European powers or whatever. And yeah, that kind of, engineered my interest in actually getting to these stories um, and legacies that exist. Because I think part of the way I think about it is that the most interesting and inspiring historians I know are always, you know, members of my family or friends who are older than me and who are able to narrate their lives with significant clarity. So someone who is in the book, but I also interviewed for the Guardian's Black Lives series, um, Ted Brown, um, I remember when I wrote that editorial for him, we had been on Zoom for three hours and he just narrated his life from beginning to end. And honestly, it was one of the most fascinating pieces of history um, that I'd ever, ever witnessed. And the fact that I had to get it down to like 2,200 words was obscene. I mean, people really praised that piece and I had to be like, this was like 5% of this guy's life and what I've been told, I just literally had to cut it down so much. Um, There were stories of really remarkable people which are actually a lot more interesting and also tell you a lot more about the nation, um, about history and about how people lived than the kind of text we're learning that we get in schools. So yeah, I just, I kind of wish that, you know, we were encouraged to look more and study more, think more about the everyday person and thinking of a way to 
capture these people's memories and histories and incorporate that into how we study and think about history is really important. I completely agree. And I think that I, I had that same kind of like abstract feeling towards history where it just sort of felt kind of irrelevant to me and overdone and just sort of I don't know, I never really meshed. I'm really upset. I kind of dropped history when I was quite young because of those exact feelings where I just kind of, I don't know why I'm here. I'm really not interested in like the Battle of Hastings or whatever we're learning about. Um, Whereas actually then, as you said, I remember having really similar conversations like with my grandmother about when she moved over from Ireland to the UK, like to London and sort of like her own personal history grew up in Clapham and like what, what the world was like. And I was like, God, this is fascinating. Also, this has happened like in the last 50 years. And this has told me more about society, culture and you know, the cultural climate of what it was like back then than I've learned in my whole school experience. Um, and it is fascinating that we sort of, now we definitely do it in this think piece and you write definitely great articles where I was just saying before we started recording a really good piece that you just did with some young girls talking about, you know, how do they feel that, that they're gonna, their lives are going to be when they finish school, where are they going to live? Um, and it was really, I felt like I got such a well-rounded, interesting perception of like what teenagers and, and younger people are thinking living in London that I ever would have done when I'm sure in 20 years time will be to think piece about, you know, what it was like to be in London during this pandemic. And it probably won't have anywhere yeah. near as much flavor or like perception as, as that piece that you did. And it's really important to know, like, what is it like to live through history? I mean, we always, you know, say that we're currently living through history with the pandemic, um, with Brexit and things like that. And I feel like the history books, all they're going to talk about is, you know, the different political actors. I mean, when we look at the history of the pandemic, um, obviously what's going to be focused on is, you know, Boris Johnson mismanaged it, but he still managed to do really well politically. And the questions about, you know, did the pandemic sink Labour and blah, blah, blah. And obviously those are, you know, particularly relevant, but they don't necessarily exist in our everyday socialising. I'm someone who, you know, talks and thinks about politics a lot, but it doesn't define my life. And I don't know whose lifetime is defined by just what's going on above them. So yeah, I think that day's piece, you know, when I spoke to these teenage girls, it was really wonderful. And it was also a little sad, you know, when they spoke about the reality of what it was like being a teenage girl in in London, the effects of the pandemic on the cityscape and how they felt that, you know, gentrification um, the increasing hostility of the city in many ways, um, including like pollution, um, a lack of um, social spaces for young people and things like that, and how the city has been decimated by austerity, has a real impact for them and, you know, might influence, you know, where they decide to move to in the future. And I think that sometimes we might just get statistics where it says, you know, own this percentage of people have moved outside of London and you can't get kind of like headline answers being like, oh, people have moved for greener stuff or for work, but you don't actually get into the nitty gritty emotional reasons for why people might be deciding to move on from the capital. Um, and that is living through history and that is as much a history of the nation as whatever Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer are doing. In a funny way, I guess, like in, in your book, I mean, you said you haven't said how much you, you're you haven't decided exactly how much yourself you want to give away, but this, it'll be an incredible piece of your own sort of history and, and lifetime. Do you feel nervous? Because I didn't realize, I, for some reason, thought you were the same age as me, but I think you're um, a little bit younger. Do you feel nervous about how much you want to say or how much you want to tell of this portion of your life? Do you feel like it's going to be very soul bearing or are you quite excited to document and archive these years, which are like super formative? Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I think that 
I'm still not sure about how much of myself I want to put into it because, you know, I want to, I definitely want to put myself in dialogue um, with the different men and kind of have that intergenerational discussion and emphasise those elements. But I also, I'm so, yeah, I'm so cautious and worried about how much of myself I'm going to end up putting into it and then reading it back and being like, oh gosh, you know, this was really exposing um, in terms of the kind of like raw emotion of what I'm detailing and also the kind of comparison of experiences as well. I mean, one of the chapters that I have is going to be looking at homophobia in the media and the ways in which you know activists organise against the media as well. And I've had my own troubles with media when I was a young student where there was instant um, over some tweets, which I can't be asked to repeat, um, back in 2017 it was, and the stories that were written about me ended up outing me to a lot of family members who didn't know and that was actually quite awful and then that experience kind of reminded me of what some of the men were sharing about the ways in which the media used to conduct themselves and the way that they were kind of forced to disclose in certain different environments not just media but also say police stations or at hospitals um, about their sexuality or about say the HIV status or things like that so I kind of thought like as much as you know there's been some diff there is some significant difference in the media landscape and I won't pretend that it's identical it it was interesting how much I was able to relate with some of their feelings and experiences. That's so terrible. I actually, I saw an article about that time when that happened to you, which I think you wrote, and it sounded like one of the most difficult things. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit actually when we come on to your next topic. But I'm so sorry that that forced yeah. you to have to come out. I mean, that's the, the pressure, the, the kind of like lack of care with which people deal with things like sexuality, which by forces external to us are seen as like, something so important that it has to be hidden or whatever to then be the the same vehicle that sort of pushes you to disclose it is is just really fucked up i guess yeah 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 exactly that um yeah there's not even much more to say on that it was just it was just quite fucked up and it's not something that i like to you know think about too much because i mean in a weird way it also kind of is responsible for why i'm a writer now because you know i i wrote that guardian piece and it was like my first i think it was like my first piece in the major newspaper and i remember really weirdly i'd only wrote i okay the reason why i had written it was because i was like look all of this shit is out about me um I'm going to be applying for jobs because I was about to go to my final year of university. And I was really worried that any job I applied for was just going to Google me and like see all of these articles about me. So I was like, I need to write something so that even if they do Google me, they at least see this and at least see me kind of speaking for myself. And, you know, hopefully they have some sympathy. So that's the only reason why I wrote it. And then I just got a really lovely response. People were just like, this is amazing. This is really well written. You were really good. Have you thought about a career, you know, writing? And I thought, well, no, I only wrote this to literally just save my ass a bit. Um, and I had done some writing at university, but I'd only done it in like the capacity of my like university positions or if there was a particular topic that I wanted to weigh in on. Um, I hadn't thought about it as a career, but yeah, weirdly it then kind of set me on that path and it got my, it got my foot in the door at the Guardian as well. And I eventually started, you know, writing bits and bits until it developed into an entire career. So yeah, as much as it was an awful experience, it also kind of launched something different for me. So I, I wouldn't, it's not that I'm glad it happened or anything like that, but I, I guess everything happens for a reason. Yeah. And sometimes from the most awful things, it can, it can kind of jar you into doing a certain thing, which turns positive. But yeah, as you say, it doesn't mean that it sort of negates what happened before. Um, what, yeah. What was your intention then before you were going to become a writer? What were you intending on doing or you weren't sure? 
Um, strangely, I always wanted to be a teacher. <laughs> I always wanted to be an English teacher. Um, but I remember thinking I'm way too messy to be an English teacher and I have like too much mess on my social media in public too. <laughs> so I kind of just abandoned those dreams. But when I was, um, when I was in sixth form, I had an illegal job, not illegal because it was illegal, but as in my sixth form didn't actually let us have jobs, but I used to sneak out during like free periods or like whenever after school to go and work and it was at a tuition center called explore learning um where you would teach kids um maths english verbal reasoning you know different skills and i actually really enjoyed it and i really thought that i'd actually really love to like teach classes one day and i've not ruled out the idea of doing it in the future either you know secondary school teaching or university teaching but yeah that's something i'd always wanted to do but i think that I've also heard from, you know, some people who have become more trained to be teachers that there's a kind of conflict between them having certain ideologies or opinions and becoming teachers. And it's like they're kind of vetted to make sure that they don't have views which are seen as anti-British or anything like that. And, you know, certain views are taken as anti-British, even if they aren't necessarily anti-British. And even if they are anti-British, you know, people are anti-British for specific reasons to do with, you know, imperialism and racism and, you know, everything that's fucking going on at the moment. So... Yeah, it kind of was ruled out for me. Um, and then I just ended up taking a really dry, boring job in policy for two years because I that was a job I got and I didn't really know what I wanted to do in my life. So, um, yeah, that's what ended up happening there. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I said the same thing, but I wanted to be a teacher because I had the most incredible English teacher when I was in sixth form. He was called Mr. Brown and he wore a brown suit and a brown tie and he's from Glasgow. <laughs> and if you, weren't, yeah. if you weren't really concentrating, his voice was so monotone. He didn't really see anything at all. But I loved him. So I used yeah. to like, listen really intently. And he's tells the most amazing stories about like psychology and philosophy. Like teach you about James Joyce through telling you about like, just he was just the most interesting man. And it, like, I like was so in love with him in every kind of sense in that like, I just was in awe of this like intelligence and this knowledge of the world. And I don't think since then there've been many people, I've spoken to so many incredible people on this podcast, but I think that when you're at that impressionable age, if you have a good teacher, you will never ever forget them there is something about um those people that and I and so I then maybe that's an ego thing actually maybe I wanted to be like make someone feel like that but after that I kind of had the same thing in the back of my mind where I'm like maybe when I'm 50 like if I retire away from doing what I'm doing now maybe then I'll go and be a teacher because I do think there is something yeah. really special about it. And I think like, especially people who love English teachers, that there's such, there's such a specific group of people who want to be English teachers. Do you know what I mean? It's such yeah, a type. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting that I wanted to be an English teacher because actually I think that the teachers who I had the best relationship and who were kind of like most formative with me were actually my history teachers. Um, and it's interesting that I never studied history at university because I now I think that the kind of work I do is very associated with like a particular kind of history, but I also don't think it's the kind of history that they're doing in the academy. So, I mean, it, it does make sense. Um, but yeah, I remember I was, we used to do like, you know, Russian history and British parliamentary history and international relations, looking at like the outbreak of the First World War and things like that and Weimar Germany. And I found it, to be honest, I did enjoy a lot of it, except for British parliamentary history was surprisingly, shockingly bad. Um, but I enjoyed a lot of my, my teachers used to make me feel really enthusiastic. Um, actually, recently, um, one of my history teachers passed away from cancer. I think it was cancer of the tongue or something like that. And it was actually really sad because, and being totally honest, I didn't love school and I didn't love everyone there. And not to say if, if some of those teachers passed away, I wouldn't care, but it's more that I wouldn't have necessarily stopped and be like, oh, that's actually you know a really sad loss for that school. Because you know, I'd never return to that school and I don't really think about it and I don't really engage with any of its alumni stuff. But I was really quite heartbroken um, that he had passed away because actually he 
in some ways it's been very formative for me thinking about you know history and I nearly applied for it at university because I had such I had better history teachers than I did um anything else I mean in the end I ended up studying sociology anyway um but yeah that was a that was a really tragic moment and I, I was really grateful to him because he just I think that they those history teachers really taught me how to write as well and how to incorporate and really how to argue too i think that more than anything they taught me how to really argue make a case for something and i think that a lot of my kind of article writing takes on this kind of like strong argumentative tone and i think actually that comes from history more than any other subject that's so interesting and yeah and, and learning to debate i remember even having like debating class and things but i'm really sorry for your loss it is sometimes those things do really kind of like take the wind out of you when you don't even know that you're sort of like holding space for that person because you might not have thought about him for however long um, yeah, yeah, I hadn't, to be honest. I had, I really hadn't. I remember just like my best friend just like messaged me from school, messaged me being like, Keith has died. And I was like, no, like, this is awful. I didn't even, like, I mean, we didn't even know he was ill. So I guess, you know, he was keeping it um, private. But yeah, it was terribly sad news. It was real, a real loss. I mean, thinking about this like so- social history kind of idea, I bet if you interviewed like every teacher, that would be just like the most incredible kind of like walk through <laughs> what the world has been like because they, I guess, see everything and are witness to sort of, especially the most formative years of young people. Um, well, I'd love to interview every teacher about me <laughs> and every teacher who, you know, taught me at a certain age because I don't know about you, but I always have this weird kind of amnesia about my teenage years. Because I, just, I think that's because I intentionally tried to forget about them because I just didn't love them. But I'd almost like to know, like, what was I like at that age and, you know, what memories do you have of me if you have any strong memories at all? Because you never, you, you can be surprised what memories people hold on to of you, actually. Yeah, and I think, I, I guess it's different for everyone, but especially for me as a teenager, I think I really didn't know myself. And so I was like play acting and trying on so many different hats. And like, I always wanted to be the class clown and then I wanted to be like the clever one. And so it'd be interesting because I'm sure that like adults are so much more perceptive than children in certain ways. I'm sure they would have been able to see through to who I probably was at that a- age. Whereas looking back in my own mind, I actually, do, yeah, I agree with you. I don't really know what people would have thought. Probably that I was a pain in the ass. <laughs> Yeah, and I also wonder what they think, if they think anything at all, of what I'm doing now as well, if they expected that um, from me. Because um, in some ways, and not to, <laughs> this is going to sound really arrogant, but in some ways I've almost become like the star out of people from my year group from that school. Um, I guess, you know, social media following and things like that. But I mean, I don't know anyone else who's writing a book. I mean, there's some people from my school who went on to be like really um, professional hockey players, and have kind of like achieved like profile in that sense. But yeah, it's, it's strange. Like I'm in the alumni of that school and I'm writing a book and I guess, I guess like, you know, being honest, that's like quite a significant thing. And hopefully, hopefully it's a success when it comes out and I'd be like an alumni of that school. And I don't know, I'm not expecting them to like recognize me. I don't really care that they do or anything like that. But yeah, I just wonder if anyone would see it and what they would think basically. And does it make you feel like, how do you feel with that, that knowledge sort of like, do you feel proud or does it make you feel uncomfortable? Like, do you want, I'm sure that people will have seen your writing. It's sort of like inescapable that someone hasn't come across it, but it's always nice if someone acknowledges it. In some ways, uncomfortable, actually, weirdly. Um, I don't know. If I saw one of my school teachers now, I think I would cross the road because I didn't want, want to have that conversation. Um, I think that 
some of my writing, it's not necessarily exposing for me, but it's like I write about, you know, sexuality and being a black gay man in Britain and things like that. And at school, I didn't come out. I kind of, I always say, like, I wish I could turn back this clock and just come out in school. Um, But I mean, I didn't because, like, both of my brothers were there. And if I was to come out in school, it would get back to them and then get back to my family. So that's the reason why I didn't. Otherwise, I just would have because it was, like, obvious enough. Um, But I remember there was actually a teacher um, who I was really sure, it was my history teacher, um, also the kind of um, deputy head of sixth form, or head of sixth form, one of them. Um, I was really certain she was a lesbian, like, very, very certain. And I remember that there was an incident in school where there was, like, I can't remember exactly what happened, but there was a really bad homophobic incident in school. And I remember chatting with this teacher about how, you know, oh, it might be nice to, like, put up some posters, you know, about um, some, like, Stonewall posters saying, like, some people are going to get over and having that conversation. I I remember being so close to telling her, this I'm gay, I was really close, but I just didn't. I don't know why. I just, I literally just didn't have the confidence to. I just didn't. And it wasn't that I wasn't confident in myself because like outside of that, I'd already been dating boys outside. And like some people like outside of that environment already knew that I was gay and everything. I was like totally comfortable with it in myself. But I just didn't want to tell her, even though I knew she was gay as well. I just, I knew she was. Um, And it's strange. Yeah, I wonder if I was to ever see her again, I'd wonder if she ever remembered that conversation. Because in a way, I think she knew what I was trying to tell her. And I think she could tell, but she wasn't going to, like, egg me on or, like, you know, make me tell her anything like that, which is, you know, obviously her being professional and considerate and not putting any pressure on me. Um, But, yeah, I wonder what it's like now to kind of see that this person who, you know, didn't really have the confidence to come out to you then is now actually writing about these things in quite, like, public places and is, like, very clear and strong on it. So um, I'm going to go on to a second thing because actually it ties in quite well. It's media and media ethics, and um, I want to yeah. I want to know what you mean by this, and and whether it's because you're obviously now in the media very very vocally, as you just said, um, you have got quite a big platform. I read a lot of what you write. I just said before I didn't realize how much of your articles actually read. I didn't. Sometimes I don't even. That's bad, isn't it? I need to read who writes them. I'm just reading stuff. Lots of it's <laughs> you. Um, so yeah, tell me what you meant by that. And what you wish you'd learn. Yeah, I think I wish I'd learned more about how the media operates exactly and how it influences people too, because I think that I never got a good, strong sense of that until I started doing my own thinking about it when I was at university. And, you know, outside of university as someone who works in media as well, because even something like the BBC, understanding the BBC as like a politically contested site, I think is actually quite essential to anyone's education. It's important to know that, for example, at the moment, there are lots of different white wings agendas about what the future of the BBC looks like. I mean, um, places like the Adam Smith Institute want the BBC to be a subscription service, but the Conservatives want the BBC to kind of like be disciplined into wielding their own agendas for cultural hegemony. But I think that when I was a child, I mean, I didn't see media as completely neutral. I knew there were right-wing papers and I knew there were, you know, left-leaning or liberal-leaning papers. I knew that. I wasn't that stupid. But I didn't get the sense of just how much the media controls and shapes the political landscape and how indebted these two forces are um, to each other. Even, you know, recently with the whole, like, Meghan and Harry Oprah interview, um, <clears throat> And what was discussed, I think what was actually most important that was discussed there was the fact that, you know, journalists are invited to dinner at Buckingham Palace and the events are thrown at them to keep them amicable. And I kind of think that what is probably most likely holding us back from any kind of like Republican revolution or real discontent with the royal family is the fact that the media is keeping in line because they are are well-fed, they are well-paid off, um, 
and they are, you know, gifted with all sorts of luxurious things to keep the public on side. And it means that we don't live in a democracy. I, I think once people, you know, start to understand the disproportionate power and influence that the media wields, we realise that we do not live in a democracy. We do not live in the in the age of free, neutral, unbiased information. And we are consent is constantly being manufactured by these papers. And I think that I remember when we would um in my history lessons, actually, something that we would do, sometimes we would have sources in the sources paper. And we would sometimes say have like newspaper sources and we might say, you know, oh, this newspaper might be biased because it's right wing or whatever. But we wouldn't really deep dig into, you know, the problems of like ownership of certain papers and, you know, masculine commercial ownership of papers and just how much this is, you know, shaping opinion and ideology and yeah, I think that, and also even media conduct as well, because I think that's something that really passed me by um, education-wise. So obviously this happened when I was in primary school, the kind of, um, you know, like the whole like news of the world scandal where they were like hacking phones and things like that. I mean, I was a primary school student then and I don't really expect to be taught that in primary school. Yeah, But I feel like that should have inspired, you know, more integrated curriculums looking at media conduct and media ethics and I think that's that's a lack of like media education I mean, if I could go back and do my A-levels again I mean, my school didn't offer this but I would have done A-level media I think that would have been really important and really helpful to not just my career but also understanding the the politics of it and the ways in which you know journalists conduct themselves and actually being able to interrogate that and looking at you know what ethical journalism is and isn't because you know when I had my issues with the press they turned up on my doorstep um it was really awful and I felt I this was probably the worst part of it was totally behind the scenes rather than the you know articles which are kind of there for life it was actually the fact that you know they were turned up to my doorstep and were kind of trying to harass my mother and my mother was like freshly grieving my dad and it was just like such a horrific intrusion and it just made me think that no one actually warns you or educates you on just the way that the media conducts itself. Sometimes you find out the hard way. And I then think about, you know, every time I see like an article of, you know, people being exposed or dots to media, even if it's someone that I really disagree with or someone who, you know, you might think is justifiably being gone after. I still think that so many people are kind of, so many of us are kind of just like at the, kind of just under the boots, under the crushing boots of these like media influences. And it's not just newspapers as well. It also extends to social media and it then like overlaps with different institutions too. So something I've been thinking a lot about a lot recently is mugshots, um, mugshots of people who are wanted or have been arrested for certain crimes. And I just always think like, why is it necessary for us to see mugshots of these people? Mm. Now, there was a recent kind of um, social media storm around um, Cold Harbour Police Station in Brixton because on their social media, there were just lots of different mugshots of black men, entirely black men, um, lots of them quite clearly struggling with mental health issues. And the reason why it kind of like exploded on the internet was because they published a mugshot of a black man who looked very clearly distressed um and his offense was that he had been begging after he had been cautioned and the way in which it was presented was basically to kind of be like you know we're keeping the streets safe and keeping this person off and it's like which communities are the police keeping safe you know it's one question and i obviously have thoughts on that but it was also like what is the purpose for reproducing these images um in a form of media it's to 
intimidate and it's also to kind of define, you know, what we consider this a citizen who is worthy and a citizen who is, you know, worthy of protection and is worthy of being integrated into the nation and to show us very visually who the undesirables are. And obviously that happens, you know, on the social media accounts of these police officers, but it also happens in papers as well. And that's why like increasingly I've moved towards like a view that mugshots should not be included in newspapers or on social media sites because it's entirely unnecessary. I don't need to see the face of this person you've arrested because what purpose does it serve, particularly when the faces are disproportionately that of black people, of people who are disabled, of people who come from certain class backgrounds and will have those particular class signifiers on their bodies. Um, so yeah, I, I really wish that we had a more robust education of this because I think that everyone needs to be more alert to media ethics and, you know, the influence of media is only growing, not just because of, you know, newspapers, but also because of social media. And I I think that, you know, we weren't properly braced for social media as well and the kind of social media conduct and social media ethics. I mean, the only thing that I remember being educated on in terms of social media in school was cyberbullying. And, mm. and to be fair, I think that was necessary because, you know, like people are trolling and people are, you know, sharing horrible images of other people as well. Um but that kind of put the onus on just, you know, individual social media users and their conduct, but it didn't look at the ways that institutions can use social media or other kind of forms of information communication to really bully, to manipulate, um, to characterise villains of the public. And yeah, I just think that's really missing. That's really lacking. I think you're so right. It's such a crucial education, which also, we, like you said, we couldn't have foreseen how much we would need to be able to arm ourselves with this understanding of how manipulated these stories and information are and how manipulated we are as readers as well into believing, like you said, certain narratives. And you said something like, oh, I wasn't that stupid. I, I knew X, Y, Z. But I don't think, I think, as you said, like we didn't understand, we were taught these really obvious biases. You know, you have this paper, which is left-leaning and this one leans to the right and they might have these implicit biases or whatever. But um, even on a really, this is such a baseline level, but when I first started, Started, but when I first became an influence, I got flown on a trip abroad and it was with lots of other journalists. And um, one of the journalists works for quite a famous women's magazine. And she was talking about how, oh, it's so annoying now because you have to declare gifts. Because years ago, what would happen is, you know, the beauty brands would just send over like a Chanel bag to your desk and say, happy Christmas, so-and-so. And basically that would mean we need to be number one on your, like the best moisturizers to use or whatever I remember sitting there and thinking yeah. what because I would obviously as younger like read magazines and I would take those lists as gospel now I know this is so much more like frivolous than what you're talking about but even that just really shocked me and the fact that also it's like everyone knows everyone who works in media knows that it's all bullshit we know these lists are made up it's it's trade-offs it's gifting as you say which is interesting because in the influencer world gifting has come under such scrutiny but that's been happening with journalists and media and and things for years and years and years and you were saying about people being outed like I guess more recently like Philip Schofield like now that I'm more in this industry you do hear stories of people like oh it's because so-and-so had this and so you know they did a deal with him and they said you know he's got to take the front page and you just think how unethical uh, how like unhumane and how how have we got to this point where um we agree to this like I'm saying we as well like, as being part of someone who's technically in the media I'm sure maybe I've yeah. subconsciously sort of agreed to I mean, I definitely do it with advertising on some sort of level, but I mean, with these more insidious things, well, how have we created this this group of people that sort of are happy to take these bribes? I mean, I don't know. It's it's a weird thing when you dig into it. We talk about the media as sort of like a mass thing, but it's a machine of people. It's not, you know, AI. No, that, I think that's very true. And I think that we need to be clear about just how extensive lobbying is. I mean, I remember 
when Zara Sultana, the Labour MP for Coventry South, I think it is, um, first was elected to Parliament, she kind of actually was showing on her social media like the extent of lobbying in this country. Like she was being sent like hampers from Heathrow, which you know, obviously since all MPs. And I just remember thinking, why has no MP ever, you know, just taken a picture and shown the extent mm. to which you know MPs are receiving this every day? And also something that I found really funny was like, you know, these British politicians are being bribed by like a tin of biscuits and like a teddy bear, whereas like, in the US they are bribed with like hard cash and like actual like luxury things but even i mean i'm not gonna like shit on prs or anything but like even as a journalist sometimes you get like in your inbox being messages being like are you working on like a gift list you know would you be interested in putting this product on this so i i don't read lists anymore because i know it's just you know it's just you know prs or whatever company has you know influence and tried to put itself in the top spot for this and you can't really trust the recommendations on there i mean I'm kind of in the habit of a weird space in that, you know, I'm obviously work as a writer, but I also have like a social media platform as well. And I talk about like TV and film and some of my writing. So sometimes I get gifted things, like not many. I mean, the things that I mostly get gifted are books, which I quite like because they help fill up my bookshelves and I like reading them. But sometimes I get gifted, um, you know, those kind of like hampers. Um, so sometimes it might be Amazon Studios or MTV and they will just be full of like little goodies. And it's mostly innocent because it's like, it's usually just to do some promotion for a show. But it also means like, if I accept this, you know, gift box from Amazon Studios um, in promotion of whatever show, does that mean like I also now have to kind of like mute my criticism of their like working conditions and, you know, the fact that you have like Amazon drivers having to like piss in bottles if they have time to do that at all um it's difficult i think that it's about the kind of like brand and reputation management and how happy you are to kind of be part of it i mean sometimes you can just accept the gifts and i personally don't think it's necessarily a huge deal on an individual level to accept the gifts if you're not in the realm of politician, sometimes you're just an inf- you're just an influencer or you're someone on social media, and that's not necessarily to like minimize the influence of that. But it's not this. I don't think it's there's any point in pretending it's the same as like political corruption. And I think mm. sometimes like influencers can sometimes be held to that standard, and it's like we don't have to act like these are all the same. Chill, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I I feel I get you. I feel strange about gifting. Um, and the kind of benevolence that's expected then towards a certain company or brand. I mean, I remember I was recently like gifted the book and I tweeted something, I posted it on my story, but I was like, you know, I have a criticism of this book and I'm going to say, and I said it. And um, the person just replied saying, oh, thank you. But I remember, I remember acknowledging like she shared every other like person posting the book on her story, but she didn't share mine, I guess, because it had a criticism, which is fair if you don't want to show share something that says something negative that's totally fine but it just shows how much it's about like gift i'll give me this um i'll give this to you and you say something really nice about it so your followers can buy it but i might not feel like that even if it's been sent to me totally and i think it's so interesting because obviously i'm an influencer i do actually get gifted i mean i've asked me gifted less purely from like a waste point of view so you get sent so much crap and i literally i'm this is wasteful but I do still get something yeah. and you're not obliged to post it so I often don't post so I really only post I love getting food and alcohol which is bad but I do because it's just you can't really say no <laughs> to a free food but there is yeah, yeah. there's kind of this implicit understanding that you if you're accepting this gift and you're going to share it you kind of can't say badly about it which is obviously a complete false economy and it's it's really not helpful and it's exactly what we were talking about with the lists in the magazine thing but the irony sorry we're probably going off topic but the irony of the influencer thing is I find that 
people are much, but like you said, I remember that MP sharing that hamper and I remember being absolutely aghast. But because it's always sort of been a part of influencer culture to get gifting, the lay public are now aware of that as a concept and have, as you said, like a very low threshold for kind of letting influencers do things, which is great. We have the ASA, like people are really strict about things, but it's just fascinating that it took like, as you say, something which has much less sway in terms of like, it's not political, I'm not a politician, um, but they're held to much a much higher standard than sort of people are who literally work in the House of Commons. And I found that really, in, like there's almost like a public what's the right word? Like a dissonance of understanding between when we're closer to something where we find it easier to critique, whereas there's so much like distance between, I guess, us and politicians that people almost don't have the energy to sort of, not everyone, but I think general public are just like, oh, well, they're corrupt anyway. Do you, does that, do you know what I mean? I, mean I, I totally agree with that. And I think it's that, but I also think there's like an extensive misogyny as well. And there's this idea that, you know, influencing is easy and that it's not real work. And, you know, therefore, um, you know, it's open to significant criticism. So I remember, I think a good point is like, you know, during the pandemic, you know, influencers who were jetting off to Dubai were kind of like named and shamed the social media and kind of like held up as like, you know, what's going wrong with our society and like the peak of selfishness and things like that. And I just kind of remember thinking like, look, it's annoying. It's annoying to be sat in your house, you know, during the pandemic and seeing people jet off to these different locations because they're wealthy enough to do so. But also what's driving this pandemic and what's, you know, kept these numbers so high is the fact that we had meatpacking factories still open and workers are forced to work in certain conditions. And, you know, we had a government which was, you know, happy to let bodies power high. Um to save the economy, which was not even saved. Um, so I often think that sometimes there's a kind of deflection in the strategy. And it's not to say that, you know, people can't criticise because people are allowed to criticise, you know, any industry. And I kind of think that if you take on the role which is public facing, then you are kind of open to scrutiny, obviously, you know, within certain limits. I think that that doesn't mean that you're open to abuse, but you will be open to challenge or interrogation and have to kind of answer for yourself. But I just thought, like, is this, like, Love Island star going on holiday the thing that people need to be riled up about? No. It, it's annoying sure but it's not the peak of it's not everything that's wrong with the united kingdom you know no but i guess it marries everything that we're obsessed with which is just like kind of that reality star drama mixed with politics it's literally like a telenovela playing out like it's like we've lost all sense of as you say like a scale and understanding of like it's definitely annoying yeah. I definitely think obviously don't break COVID rules and fly to Dubai that's just why would you do that but as you say like <laughs> it's the drama of it all it's like everything suddenly just become like we're living in a sitcom it's not there's no real kind of which is what I find interesting because when I log on to Twitter and obviously you're a very good tweeter avid tweeter and you're often like doing like taking the holding people to account you're discussing things really importantly and sometimes I look at my Twitter feed which is actually mostly young journalists in their 20s to be honest and it's got way more to say for itself like that that feed and that stream of consciousness and all those opinions than any of the papers if I picked up any of those papers on a given day um and it's just fascinating how like there's definitely obviously we need to buy real papers and this whole thing about you know it's a dying industry but kind of if you're when you do have these stories that are kind of just nothingness it's no wonder that yeah. we've just got a whole generation that just looks to you know social media for the news rather than tabloids and, and yeah. traditional print i mean media's newspapers are curated in the way that you like your social media timeline is not i mean 
my Twitter is literally just me going off on my thoughts about something with kind of no filter. And obviously, like a certain paper has to set a certain agenda. It has to say things with certain lines. It can't be seen as contradicting itself. It needs to, I mean, I, I think that, you know, contradictions are beautiful. I contradict myself all the time because mm. thoughts are complex and no one has entirely consistent thoughts. And I think this idea that, you know, we need to be absolutely consistent and everything is unrealistic because that's not how people think. Um, but, you know, a newspaper has to hold a certain line or if they abandon a certain line, they've got to have a really, roundabout reasons for abandoning it. I mean, today's the day of the, um, you know, the local elections and all of these different papers which had, you know, been praising Keir Starmer for his forensicness and all of that are now kind of changing their tune, but they're doing it in such a way that they're not making concessions to the fact that certain people had these criticisms of him in the first place. They're just diagnosing new issues and kind of saying, you know, oh, well, he was good for... Basically, you know, people went from saying, you know, this is someone who's going to save Labour and bring in a new era, to then saying... Yeah, he was always meant to be good for the transition, but now it's time for someone else. And it doesn't, con- it doesn't so much contradict what they were saying before, and it still holds a certain line. But it also completely ignores the fact that the issues that are now blowing up the Kiss Lummer were predicted by people who are, don't ideologically align with what these papers and what these columnists have been saying. So, yeah, it's I. You can never really if you just. I wonder what it's like for people who just read newspapers to shape their opinions and what or even what my outlook would be if I just looked at newspapers to share my, share my opinions. I think that social media is kind of a force for good in some ways. I and mean, obviously everyone's time like is an echo chamber and it depends on what you select and the size of you. Um, but yeah, it allows me to actually like properly engage and properly think through things. Whereas I think that newspapers proclaim to have done the thinking for you, I guess is the significant difference. Whereas, you know, Twitter timelines are snippets of information and like different people's thoughts and you kind of construct them and interpret them and form your own conclusions. I think you put that perfectly. And also I, wa- I watch that critical thinking like play out. I've seen it with you where you've like disagreed with someone else that I know that you like have really similar beliefs to and then I'll read both things and I'll think, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it like that. And it gives me the space then to think, oh, I wonder what I think. Whereas I agree, like my mum reads papers cover to cover and I bet that she walks away and she's like, as you said, the thinking's done for her, she's done great. That's what I need to know about the day. Fantastic. I'll store that and I'll remember that for next time. Whereas I guess, I think I think this is more exclusive to Twitter than other platforms um there is there is a lot of that working out that you get to be a part of um not always also because of, obviously everyone then has this fear also of changing their mind you have the, the one school of thought where yeah. the working out and you know you're doing the critical thinking and the other side is once you've made your bed you've got to line it and you cannot possibly suddenly go from liking kirstama to disliking kirstama because people will be like but you liked him yesterday or whatever that's a really damaging yeah. part um of social media but i guess <sighs> I think I think it is because I follow lots of journalists who are my age, your age, who are changing the form a bit of of what it what it means to be someone in the media. Do you think that's true, or do, do you, does it come as up as a problem if you don't want to write in a certain way? Has it has it been a, an issue for you, or do you think the landscape of media is just going to have to change to fit around this new? It's not really new, but a different way of doing things. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 
I think that's true, but I also think the kind of like young journalist class that I belong to are people who aren't staff writers, who are freelancers. And mm. the reason why we are freelancers is because there's such a death of opportunities. Like I don't expect to get a staff job. It's just too impossible. And because these jobs are now so scarce, people are moving around less. Like some of the editors that I was working with years ago are in the same position at the same paper <laughs> still now because move and go where, you know? Yeah. Um, so because a lot more of us are kind of just, you know, working for ourselves and there's a real decline in like local journalism opportunities and being like trained in house, it kind of means that, you know, we're training ourselves and we're becoming alert ourselves and that makes us inherently critical of media and the way media is done. And so it means that we kind of set our own rules and we also have to stand out by having set our own rules and by having, you know, written writing and speaking by the rules that we set rather than the rules that are set by, you know, mainstream media. And I think just going back to what you were saying before about, you know, how much, you know, these like different spaces can influence you to change your mind. I mean, one of my really good friends actually told me this morning that um, his mum had been like a ferocious Keir Starmer defender um, because she had been reading Guardian columns that were in favour of him. But Marina Hyde came up with a column basically saying that he's useless. And his mum has now been like, I agree with that. Yeah, Kisama, useless. So almost as if overnight, because she's been following the Guardian line, you know, a selection of Guardian journalists, her view has just been shaped. And it's I as much as I'm not a fan of Keir Starmer, I wasn't infused by that. I didn't think, oh, great, now she's seen the light. I thought, look how easily people can just be, views can just be shaped by just a columnist opinion rather than them actually doing any kind of independent thinking. And the implications that has for like everything else beyond Keir Starmer, beyond like the Labour Party and our views of other things is just alarming. But I think also there's, um there's a, like people are a bit reticent to to go against like what it's first of all it is hard for people to kind of take a decision which goes against you know the status quo so if your friends are all guardian readers and that's all you've ever read even if deep down you're somewhere like starting to question it it can be terrifying to kind of take that leap and look for something that's on the opposing line um but i definitely i now come to things basically saying i have no fucking clue because that's happened to me so many times where i think i formed an opinion and then i read a piece and i think oh no, I agree with that. And then I think it is really scary to think, God, I obviously don't know what I'm talking about at all then. If I can change my mind that easily on something, then I think, right, there's obviously, I need to learn about this a lot more. Um, And I wanted to go back quickly actually to what you were saying about, I just was thinking about how many times it's funny watching the generational difference between like your generation of writers and the older ones who seem constantly threatened by what you guys are writing and saying on Twitter. Um, because oh, yeah. because you all do kind of have your own voice and you're also not worried about saying things and you don't sort of act in a way that's like traditional media kind of like bum licking up to whoever is the the current favor of flavor of the week um do you do you enjoy that kind of conflict or do you find it a bit like stressful or it doesn't bother you I mean, I kind of like the conflict because I think that, you know, they do feel threatened and they do know that, you know, we are often more talented and better thinkers than them. Um, that, you know, people are increasingly turning to looking at, you know, younger journalists and what they have to say about certain things because they realise that actually they're giving them fresh independent insights and not just following the line of the paper or they're not just being lobbied by some politicians who write things in a certain way or they're not, we're not just, you know, consolidating class interests or whatever in papers. But I also think that it does also lead to some abuse. I mean, I've gotten some abuse from um 
politicians even and like senior journalists for articles that I've written in like Tribune. So I remember I wrote an article looking at um, the context of Blairism and the reality TV in the nineteen in the early two thousands, and I was looking at how the kind of social policy landscape of Blairism kind of um, influenced the media landscape in terms of television shows and what was considered entertaining and who was considered degenerate. And it was quite a straightforward argument, and it was really you know it was ba- I made sure it was backed up because it was a bold argument to make by you know things that would actually happening so like for example the un in i think 2008 had directly condemned the labor government saying that its policies were leading to children being exploited in reality television shows like super nanny or whatever and i just had some of these like centrist politicians and journalists being like oh you know this just abuse being like how did this person get his degree you know oh this person it's never it's never actually about the argument also it's never anything there's never a response to any of the points that you make it's just abuse about you and a kind of character assassination and being like oh this person's just like really left radical and some of it also gets quite racist a lot of the time but i think an example of that is you know my friend moya she wrote um an article for the guardian she's the galden political editor and she's my housemate as well and she wrote an article for the guardian um, about Keir Starmer basically saying like he kind of stands for nothing and a bunch of really awful journalists politicians whoever they were um basically started saying like oh as if we can take her seriously because she'd written some pieces for like stylist magazine <sighs> and it was just an ignorance to the fact that you know if you are like a young journalist you end up writing about really disparate topics and you can write a serious political article and you can also write something that you know someone might consider more fluffy and that's fine you know like i'm going to be writing articles about love island this summer when it's on that doesn't mean i don't have serious political analysis it just means i live a rounded life like lots of other young people and that doesn't make me really unique it's not like oh i can do both it's like lo- most of us do both lo- lots of us you know have really rounded lives but yeah there's a kind of like abuse and there's so much like there is so much derogatory um treatment towards you know young journalists who are independent-minded um i think some of it's jealousy and projection being honest because you know i guess they wish they could be us <laughs> um but most of all, it is it can be it can be very unpleasant. And I think that it can also be quite demotivating as well because sometimes, you know, these people might hold influence at a big publication. I mean, luckily the kind of publications that I work at tend to um either be so big that it wouldn't matter if one editor didn't like you. So say for example, The Guardian is big enough that if some editor or some columnist doesn't like me, it doesn't matter. Like I one thing I've always said about The Guardian is that no matter how many times I criticize it publicly, they still let me write for them. So it, it's fine. Or, you know, we tend to work at, or we tend to write for magazines where the people who are editors are, like, close to us in age and also tend to have similar views as well. So, like, I mean, I've got an editor who I work with on my close friend's Instagram story. So sometimes it can be that close. Um, so, yeah, the kind of, like, difference generations, it, it is quite stark. And sometimes the relationship there can be very not nice, I think. That's interesting. I actually remember reading that piece that you wrote about um, Blair right? and, and, like, TV. Because I remember thinking as well about how much I'd realised that the c word i don't like like i don't think you should say it but about like that kind of like class yeah. degradation and, and that time in my life and i remember thinking i've completely kind of forgotten about asbos and i think you spoke about um what was that show you are the weakest the weakest link or whatever in that piece didn't you yeah. and i was like oh my god i forgot yeah. that there was a massive chunk of my life that was completely dictated about this idea about like unruly lower class youths who were going to come and like smash up your garden or whatever and i'd completely forgotten that that had been like quite a big like okay thing that people would talk about like when I was young and I've forgotten about that and I was like that it really kind of made made me realize you like how 
it's funny because you never really see those things anymore. And then I, I saw, I think maybe around the time that you'd written that piece that there were people were bringing up again, um, you are the weakest link, whatever. Is that what the show was called? Was it just called The Weakest Link? It was Weakest Link. Yeah, yeah. and just how, and all of those kind of programs and like Benefit Street and all the sort of like poverty porn and like just really odd takes. And um, yeah, nothing to say apart from I remember thinking that article was interesting and it really, it just made me revisit a time in my life that I'd completely forgotten and just chalked up to like history and then actually now like knowing what I know and living the way that we live and speaking the way that I speak and thinking about that being so normalized is really odd so Um, and that leads into you know media ethics as well right because I mean in those days the sun would be publishing like the names and faces of really young children who had been given asbos or at least that was proposed by some like certain like new labor cabinet ministers to do that and you know there would always be like stories of you know different unruly youths and what they've got up to and that kind of can that kind of manufactured consent for you know the nation's children to be treated as kind of underclass and so thinking about that relationship between media and politics is really really incredibly important because media kind of help set and build consent for the policy agenda which politicians want um yeah and that and that matters i think that's something that you just don't become super aware of because i remember as a child you know i was growing up in council estate and i don't love going on about my background but um i remember just like there was always the talk about you know hooded youths and the c word and asbos and i remember thinking sometimes you know is this me because mm. <laughs> i'm from this background and you know myself and my friends and my brothers i guess we fit the profile of who these politicians are talking about and what the media's talking about and then obviously you'd see it on shows about like super nanny or wife swap or whatever this idea of you know unruly children and all sorts of other shows as well and stuff about even stuff about like fat families and things like that and it just kind of ended up internalizing <coughs> some of these ideas of you as a kind of like inferior species within the nation. Um, and yet yeah, it, it just matters to think that it's, yes, it's like the political, political agendas of the day, but also how complicit is are all forms of media with establishing those ideas and making it, people think that this kind of degradation is okay. Because you know what, when people go back and watch those weakest link, um, shows they're just like shocked they're absolutely shocked about that they're like that was on primetime television not very long ago but at the time you would have watched it and not batted an eyelid and i wanted people to think about you know how do you get to a point where you can get to this level of you know degradation persecution of minorities and it can just happen before your eyes and you're completely numb to it you know because at the time it would have gone past undetected it just was something that was just sort of like you were allowed to say it like i don't i think there was definitely the understanding that it was like it's obviously not nice, but it was like, it was like, the, yeah, it's exactly what you said. You're giving people permission to say, look, you're yeah. a nuisance or you're whatever. And it also completely emancipates the system, the state and the parents from like these, it's as if children, what, do they just exist in a vacuum and just pop up and then are just absolutely like hell raisers as if they've like yeah. where have they got this if they were naughty like where has that come from um yeah yeah talking about media ethics you tweeted something I was just trying to look but I can't remember and I guess this is kind of like swinging through back the other day the complete other way and you were like the one thing I worry about now is like what do people actually think my work's any good or are they literally just getting me but on to talk to them or to write for them because I'm black and gay and I guess that's yeah. in a really weird way, sort of like a full pendulum swing to the other side where it's still unethical, but it cleverly kind of masks itself as being ethical. Is that something that you're starting to question more? Yeah, I question that because sometimes, maybe this is usually just comes from me being critical. Um, and I remember when I went and met my editor at Faber, um, 
for the first time we just went for like lunch together and I remember saying that, you know, I get a bit worried sometimes that, you know, there are some sections which can be really obsequious to like different black writers or black gay writers and kind of say, you know, oh, we love your work. This is amazing. But sometimes you don't know if they actually love it that much or if they're overcompensating because they're like, oh, you know, you're young and you're black and you're gay, you're diverse. And therefore we need to, we need to be seen as supporting this. And sometimes it means that, you know, you're not sure of a proper quality assessment of the work that you're doing either, you know, the, author- the kind of literary work that I'm doing or even just like the articles that I put out. And yeah, it, it does make me question things because sometimes I read things from black journalists and I think this is not very good or this is not very well researched or this is not very well written, but it will be getting lots of praise. And hey, maybe people actually genuinely do think that they like it. But I also wonder, do people feel like they can't like constructively criticise an article because, you know, we need to be seen as, you know, supporting each other or people want to be publicly seen as, you know, bigging up this like black writer or something. Um, yeah, there's kind of difficult tension there. No, it is really interesting. I think the one thing that's also interesting is that years ago, there would have been so many young white male, especially writers who probably were shit and people were like oh that's fine because your dad's so-and-so and they never would have been like yeah. critically questioning that like you are like they would never have been like oh my god am I actually not that good they'd be like great thank you walk through the door um, yeah. by the way I do think you're a good writer but I think I do agree but I think um I think now oh god sorry we're talking for ages but like I guess going into like some of the things that happened um I can't remember when it was beginning of this year with like online again in the same generation people are being like look we can't just use identity politics as something to be like a tick box we have to like keep each other in check and sort of not give free passes just because we're trying to change the narrative around things so I I wonder if that is gonna but then that's then that's dangerous because then you don't want to tip the balance again where it like allows people to be outright racist or outright discriminatory or like um prejudice whatever like it that's why it's scary to kind of call it not that I would call it out but like going into that critical sense then I just think it's so that exactly as you said there's such a tension there and it it kind of can make or break a certain situation if that makes sense yeah well I think it's easy for people to kind of and I I don't want to like name anyone's names or examples because that's just messy but I think it's easy for people to kind of like bring up their identities as a way to kind of deflect criticism or to you know insist that people support them I mean I could easily kind of like demand that people support me because I'm a black gay journalist and I'm owed that or something but I want people to support me because they like the work that I'm doing and that they learn something from it and that they think that I'm talented and they're um, invested in my growth and my career um, but yeah there's a kind of tension because you do want to be able to actually have that kind of like intra-community um, discussion and criticism and you know I hate the term hold people accountable because mm. I, oft- I often think like why do I need to be accountable to a bunch of strangers which I think is totally fair um, but be able to say you know like this is you know a dangerous ideology or to say like this is not an idea which we should stand for and we shouldn't just accept this you know uncritically because it's coming from someone who is from the same identity group as you I mean there can be you know conflicts and differences in how people think I mean I think something recently was that say um, for example the kind of like um visuals and activism which propped up in response to the um, murder, the very sad murder of Sarah Ivrov, there were actually divisions in terms of feminist responses to it. I mean, there was some division between what the organisation that popped up called Reclaim These Streets was doing and the kind of money they were raising where they were putting it as compared to what Sisters Uncut were doing. And it's like, you can't, you know, say that there's one coherent woman's view mm. on the kind of like organising or the response that's needed to this kind of violence. We are 
all diverse in the kind of views that we have. I mean, not every black person, for example, believes in the abolition of the police like I do. Um, not every black person believes in ending deportations like I do. And so I think that we need to kind of stop using identity as the ground zero um, for our discussions and our analysis. And even particularly, I mean, I always, I'm always cautious of this because sometimes I think, you know, like, uh, how much do I want a white person weighing into black issues or something like that? But sometimes I think like, we don't necessarily need to preclude people from conversations because of their identity if they do have something valuable to say and if they do have something valuable to teach. I mean, I'm more likely to take directions from someone like, say, Owen Hathaway, who's like one of the white editors at Tribune, than I am from Kemi Badenoch, who's like a black conservative MP. So, yeah, I think that I'm really... I'm really glad that, you know, as I've gotten older, I've really let go of this idea that I need to like align with people of my ethnic group or my sexuality. I mean, I've seen like three different black gay Tories on Twitter um, who emphasise that they are black gay Tories because no one does identity politics like Tories, mm. to, to be honest. And it's kind of like, I can't pretend that there's mutuality between our ideologies or any kind of ground just because we have we come from you know the same identity groups it's just not the case i mean even in my household we don't have the same ideological views i mean my younger brother and i are both like quite left wing labor my mother's more centrist my older brother i think is more centrist as well so yeah i'm really i'm pleased for there to be more kind of like inter-community criticism and dialogue and i'm hoping that over time we start to see you know more articles more writing that really interrogates black communities i mean something that i'm really interested in is interrogations of class Mm. um, amongst black people i think that's kind of inspired my experiences of private school because i came to private school and i was on a scholarship and i was like from a poor background and it was quite obvious that i was as well as much as i tried to hide it and i remember like a lot of the time people asked me like oh it must have been really bad like all those middle class white people i'm kind of like well Yes, but also some of the middle-class black people were also quite awful and they held, they held certain views. Like they would be like really condescending about people who lived in council estates like I did. And I kind of thought like, you know, there isn't, there wasn't some kind of like racial solidarity or cohesion there. Like people do have certain views which might be in former class and just because they're black doesn't mean that I can't criticise them or hold them to account. I hate that term, but yeah, doesn't mean I can't criticise them um, for that or be clear about the kind of like violences which can exist within groups. So yeah, I'm, I'm really just fed up of identity as the ground zero of every kind of criticism. Yeah, I, me too. But I, I remember thinking like when I first was like becoming to understand about intersectional feminism, intersectionality and all this stuff when I was at uni and I was like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. This is how we should be organizing each other and working it out on like a, you get five points for this, minus five points for this. And we can work out these like privilege checklists and then we can all sort of like, and yeah. as you say, it's just so much more complicated than that. And it's so redundant to just be like, okay, well, you can speak on this because they're not that far be it for me. I'm not saying I want to get involved in criticizing anyone for anything but um just yeah. just starting again it's it's just that critical eye it's not even being critiquing it's not necessarily saying someone's wrong it's just having that ability to to zoom out and think actually like am I literally just listening to this person because they have you know this many followers and identify as xyz and do this like you know there has to be sort of like an amalgamation of of lots of things I think it's is it Shardine Taylor Stone is someone that I follow on Twitter and she did a really yeah. good tweet quite a while ago about um like why we've got to stop looking at identity politics and think about more like coalition building and kind of forget all of this idea of what separates us because it's it's kind of just finding more ways to tear each other like put it separate each other um it's kind of i think we've i think we've done it i think we've done identity politics like to the death 
Yeah, and I think that those ideas are really well explored in Emma DeBerry's um, What Why People Can Do Next, which is a really fantastic book that I've like raved about. And she also talked about that need for coalition building and the fact that we just, I think sometimes I, I'm really, I think when I was like 18 and I like discovered the concept of privilege, I was like, oh my God, yeah, this really understands it. This is a good organizing principle for understanding the world. And now I'm just, I'm sorry. I, I'm really sick of this idea that we all need to kind of like, this kind of confessional politics where everyone needs to like stack their different um, intersections mm. and kind of like, weigh up and see who's more marginalised than the other before deciding who can speak. Like, people need to actually... I think what was a good distinction that was made in the book was when Emma kind of said that, you know, people are getting information, but they're not getting knowledge. And knowledge is made by, like, engaging and, you know, generating and criticising and thinking through things properly rather than just, like, taking some things as authority. Like, I kind of got to the position where I'm like, no, I'm not going to take your authority on this purely because of who you are. I'm going to think about these things independently and read a wide range of things and come to my own conclusions. And that matters because I think that, you know, there were points where I probably believed or followed certain things because I thought, oh, this person's of this identity group, so I should follow what they're saying. But it's like, we don't all have the same opinions. We all have our own conflicts, so everyone has to do their own work, and that's what matters the most. And I often think the kind of, like, privilege beating... I think, you know, in in some cases, like, it, it, it still matters and it's still significant, and it, in certain environments it matters. But I kind of think that the whole white privilege stuff, sometimes it becomes a very corporate idea. Like, sometimes it's about, you know, who gets a promotion above you based on privilege, and that's, you know, those are valid discussions. But it's not the same as, you know, articulating the language of, like, class conflict mm. and interesting coalitions and the kind of violences that people face which aren't reducible to privilege they're about power and i think that it was sean faye a friend of mine who put that on her story where she was basically like you know this idea of privilege say like cis privilege she was talking about is really outdated because it's about power and she was saying how like as a transgender woman it was a cisgender doctor who you know operates her on her um it's like um a cisgender civil servant or something who like processes her like gender recognition significant or I don't really know the technicalities of it um but it's understanding where different actors have power and how you know these things occur um yeah I I think that a lot of people are also starting to kind of like move past this like kind of like hyper-identity politics like privileged discussion I mean I remember back when I think the time when I started to realize this is a bit ridiculous is when there were discussions basically being like how to explain white privilege to a homeless person I just thought this is ridiculous Mm. I, I don't care about explaining white privilege to a homeless person I would care about you know getting them off the streets and and looking at what kind of like health needs that they have. So I sometimes think that we get bogged down in these discussions and all it is, is it's just a discussion. That's it. It's just us talking and white people or straight people or cisgender people just self-flagellating and apologising for their privilege. And what is actually gained for anyone? Yeah, that's the thing. This is, I mean, this is where this podcast kind of ended up. It wasn't meant to be about this. And then it ended up being like, oh my God, let's find out about the world and all stuff. And then it ended up being sort of just... um, not awareness based. I've had so many incredible conversations, but I got to a point where I was like, I don't need to, like, we don't need to raise awareness. I think there's a whole generation of people of loads of different ages who had this same sort of like awakening at the same time and all kind yeah. of, and then now are all, as you said, like fucking fatigued. Like we don't, but the irony being that yeah. like mainstream publication, whatever, are just catching on. I really need to read Emma's book. I have it written down anyway, but um, it just sounds like yeah. it's a great next step in that conversation because I think we have all done it to death and it sort of makes you feel a bit like oh my god I'm gonna vom if I have to read one more 
thing, even though I was definitely like such a big player in those conversations, but it felt like relevant at the time. And now I look back to podcasts a few years ago and I'm like, oh my God, shut up. This is just like, what is, what good does it do? I'm literally like listing my privilege. I did a TED talk and the beginning of the TED talk, I'm like, yeah. I'm white, cis, hat, able-bodied, neurotypical, like, 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 yeah. as if that was somehow then it was like once I'd said all of that it's like okay now I can speak and it's like actually yeah that's not yeah. really relevant yeah. you know it is but it's not yeah. in that yeah. sense it's just like it's the politics and confession and it just becomes really unnecessary yeah it's it's writing yourself into it's like setting yourself up to discuss something by first acknowledging the different ways in which you are privileged, but that doesn't necessarily, it also doesn't necessarily make any difference in what you're even saying. So I think my friend Rachel wrote a really good article about this, but I just can't quite remember the details of it. But I think it was for The Guardian where she basically just wrote about like how sometimes like authors kind of set up by talking about their different privileges, but it doesn't actually like bear on any kind of reflection of their actual positionality beyond talking about that privilege. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of like glad to see the end of that reduction is. And I think it's good for people to kind of come full circle and realize that like this kind of like economy we have of, you know, privilege raising awareness and privilege and all of that. I mean, I talk, I constantly go on about how much I hate infographics on Instagram because I'm always just like, you know, who is this for? <laughs> um, and where it's kind of like, here's what you can do about this. And here are seven ways in which you are privileged above me. And I just think, who's this for? Because like, first of all, like most people in your timeline, unless you're educated about a humanitarian crisis or something like that, most people in your timeline know what white privilege or whatever it is. And they decide by now they've decided if they care or if they don't. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's not about awareness raising it's not the case that you know someone will become educated and now suddenly that they will you know start behaving or have a different worldview. people know these things they've read the arguments and they've chosen their alignment you know giving boris johnson a book on white privilege is not going to change anything <laughs> um so i I think basically understanding that actually what we are facing is class struggle and class conflict and that's what matters and actually being clear that this is a battle which is based in aggression is based on you know certain interests actually clashing with each other and that's always how history has been right rather than acting as if it's a process in which you know we can hold people's hands and we can win these things by you know being really, really loving and kind of like guiding people through it that's not how these things are won and it's never how these things have been won and i think that it distracts from the necessary work that actually needs to happen and actually going up against and i think that one of the most instructive and educational things that's been going on at the moment has been the killed the bill protest it's been mm. educating people on the extent of state power and the extent of state authoritarianism and what the actual threats to speech are and it's politicised and mobilised people who have not previously been politicised and mobilised and thought about their rights in terms of protest and thought about the ways in which government tries to suppress dissent and that is so much more powerful and impactful than just flogging people about their privilege because it shows that you do have a stake in anything that the state does all of us have a stake in how the state operates and all of us going out and building people power and protest and shutting these things down is what's going to help you know break these things and you know people refer to you know the massive backlash in response to the poll tax which was what ended up um undoing thatcher in the early 90s and it's like we do need to be ready for these big conflicts and the fact that this isn't gonna the revolution isn't gonna happen by instagram infographic um no. <laughs> and yeah understanding that and understanding that your position is not about confessing your different privileges and your intersections and then talking it's about attending these protests if you can it's about sharing the resources which are actually important and which matter and also educating yourself and critically thinking mm. i always emphasize people need to critically think when you're reading something you need to read it to critically think with it pick up a pencil engage what do you agree with what do you disagree with why do you think that as a result of reading that 
it's it's important but as you said I definitely think that there's been it's literally as you said like coming full circle and there's going to be this huge space of everyone suddenly oh fuck what are we doing like why are we sharing this infographic that like we've literally seen the last million people that we follow I do that now where I'm like I'm not fucking sharing it you can send it to me but like I know that you've already seen it on 80 people's stories so why do you want me to put it up because all that does is says yeah I've seen it don't worry tick and I might not read it might not even you don't even know if I've looked at it I could have just shared it and that's that's where I think it's now people are starting to go okay I do think there was a point like maybe in the height of um this summer last summer when actually it was amazing people were literally learning about you know white supremacy for the first time whatever and and, but then that kind of then got diluted and, and turned into like this thing that is now there's an infographic for literally anything and um yeah but. I remember not loving those infographics at the time. I, mean, I get why it was useful and some, some people it was useful and that's fine. But I remember like recently on Instagram, sometimes people, and they don't, sometimes they don't even follow me. They will send me yeah. an infographic that they made and ask me to share it. And I would think, fuck off. Why have you, <laughs> have you asked me to share this because you're trying to raise awareness? Or I think one people, one thing people have realised is that if they create something that's really shareable, like an infographic, everyone shares it on their stories and it, it drives up their engagement rate and they gain followers. And it means that their selfie gets more likes. Yeah, it's, it- kind of like a calculation like that um and that's why people share infographics and it's it's quite obvious and one really cynical thing that's happened recently and i was really appalled by this um recently someone had posted um something of like a missing a young missing black person and this account didn't even follow me and it just sent it in my dms to share it and i noticed that it was like watermarked with their podcast <gasps> it was this image of a missing black child and it was watermarked with their podcast and not only was the child already found and they kept the post up but it was like you send this to me randomly so i could share it so what you could get what thirty thousand likes because it's gone viral and then you hope that what a hundred people will follow you and start following mm. your podcast i just thought that is sick and i thought that this kind of like information sharing economy it's so easily exploited it's so easily exploited because also you feel guilty if you don't share that missing person or if you don't share that infographic talking about a certain crisis but and it's not and i think that a lot of the time you know we feel disempowered and we feel like there are ways that we cannot help i mean today is a day where people feel politically helpless and people mm. are just like you know what it's gonna be fucking tory for the next 20 years just fuck it what can we do and sometimes social media gives us a way to make us feel like we're doing something because it feels like it's an action because you know people talk about words not action so sharing something feels like an action or donating to something feels like an action um but a lot of the time it isn't and sometimes i do think we need to also understand that you know sometimes these bigger issues are bigger than us as individuals and that does not mean you have to be apathetic or start disengaging or anything like that but it does mean that you need to think about things critically you need to think about why you're sharing something and what the benefit of sharing it is um you need to educate yourself on the issues if you're going to read an infographic and you care enough to share it i hope that you're also reading further you know i hope you didn't just read the infographic and put it there and not read it further because you know that's what people are doing so yeah, I was really appalled by that person who sent me that picture of the missing child. I felt really, I didn't say, I just deleted the DM because otherwise I would have been really rude to them. But I just couldn't believe that their watermark was there. And obviously it would have been shared however many times. And I was just really appalled. No, that is that is disgusting. And but it's so exploitative. And I think that we're going to see, I mean, I'm so ready to read Moya's think piece about this because I'm sure she'll have to do one soon. But just about how, like, even if you don't want, don't want to be an activist, like the what Instagram kind of makes you feel like you have to be in order to have some worthiness. And that's kind of another thing we need to get away from. It's like, actually, not everyone has to be an activist. Most people aren't really designed to be activists. You can be caring and give back to your community and try to be like as aware as you can be, but you really don't, like we can't keep 
it's become a new commodity in a way that I, I can't quite explain. But at one point where it would yeah. be like posting your brunch was like the thing to do on Instagram. It's like now the thing to do is make sure that you're up to date with the latest government yeah. coup that's happened wherever in the world. And it's making everyone not only yeah. to imagine like 15 year olds are probably anxious as fuck trying to make sure that they know like what whatever's happened in Myanmar, whatever's happened wherever. And then everyone else has sort of got this, like you said, that false sense of security, like, oh, good, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. I've shared that thing. Um, I've signed that petition. And obviously all of these things are good, but they're not when they, they've just lost all meaning now, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... I'm I'm very I'm someone who's very fed up with it. So um, I'm not even. I'm sure some people can you know launch a defence of like Instagram activism, but I'm I'm particularly fed up with it. And I also don't like being. I'm often referred to as an activist, and I'm always like I'm a writer, and mm. obviously that always happens to minority writers. If you are a black writer who writes about black issues, or a gay writer who writes about gay issues, or a trans writer who writes about trans issues, then it means you're an activist. It's like no, I'm not an activist. I'm a writer, and I do not want the responsibilities that come with activism. You know, activism comes with great personal sacrifices i'm honest that i'm not ready or willing to make those sacrifices in my life and i can accept that and a lot of people need to accept that they're not and that's fine you know there are people who will do that work and do do that work and you know i will always support them and i back them but it's okay to say that this is not my range or like i don't have the bravery to do this i think too much about my own security my own safety to do that and is it selfish i guess we're all selfish that's how things are yeah i'm I think it also ends up devaluing some of the other work that you do do. Like some people are like, you know, I'm a writer, I'm a content creator, I'm a singer, I'm this and that. And I think that it means that, you know, as black people particularly, we're kind of just constrained to just this like realm of activism. And I also think that some people also really readily take up the label of activists as well, because it kind of, it benefits them. And it's kind of like, I don't know if you can call yourself an activist and also do spunk on. I, I just don't think so. Like, I think that naturally, if you're an activist, you should be, you know, going against a lot of these different organisations and this isn't me saying I'm better than you because you do Sponcon I've done Sponcon before but I'm also not calling myself an activist I'm just a writer who writes about certain issues Um, so I just yeah I think that that whole label I think more people need to drop it from themselves to be honest and also people need to stop so readily attaching it to anyone who has just spoken on certain issues because it's like these are are our lives you know Um, Yeah, and I think also, like, activism is always meant to be about the collective. I just, I don't think that activists are meant to be named individuals. And I think that it's also part of the problem, again, in how history is taught, right? We're always taught about, you know, the individuals who did big things. So we're taught about, you know, MLK MLK as an individual, Rosa Parks as an individual. We just don't learn enough about the kind of organisations and collective solidarity which goes into that. And even thinking to the United Kingdom, we don't have enough understanding and education about the trade union movement um, for example and the ways in which people organize throughout it and you know strike and power and things like that and how key gains were made collectively i mean if we talk about say like the poll tax and you know who led the poll people can't name individuals who were leading the poll tax riots or one activist individual who you know stood up to thatcher that was seen as a collective that was seen as a story of a nation who fought back and said no more Right. And I think that's missing the fact that, you know, these activist stories are about communities. They're about collective work. They're about solidarity and radical change. They're not about this individual going and standing up and doing their own individual thing. And I just I get very tired of that. I agree. I wonder if it's also just a a limitation of language where there's certain people who, especially someone who's really educated, really passionate, maybe like you, who understands like what, what, 
like historical grassroots activism really meant and then obviously young teenagers coming up now who really want to be activists and I, I wonder if there's just a level of miscommunication we need like a different word for what it is when you're online and sharing things which also might take so much emotional labor and be really tiresome and obviously like this whole question of accessibility of the online world but there definitely is some sort of disjunct between Oh, there's, there's just like a, a dearth of knowledge between what, you know, what activism is and what it's being presented as in like current standing. Yeah. The minute you, someone puts that label of activist on you, if you like try and what, I don't know, buy a pair of shoes, they're like, well, you can't enjoy nice shoes because you're supposed to be being activist all the time. And it's like, no one even said that they were yeah. that. Um, so yeah, joy yeah. and fun need to be like injected back into the story. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, people need to be able to, like, live, you know, like, holistic and balanced lives. Like, sometimes people follow me on social media for, like, you know, political tweets and when I'm, like, really rather up, and then they'll see me tweeting about something really trivial and they'll unfollow me, and it's like, well, I'm a 24-year-old boy. What do you want? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a life outside of being angry at the government. So, yeah, I, I totally understand that, and I, I sympathise with the fact that, you know, you're kind of expected to always be on. And even people that I know who are, like, um, I know some people who actually, you know, organise in, like, actual, like, radical activist collectives. They've still got lives. They've still go on holiday they still you know watch trash tv they were watching the megan harry oprah interview living for the drama because you know we can't just stay angry all the time we can't just you know constantly be doing that fight so yeah i, I totally agree with that totally now your last thing that you wish you'd been taught in school was public speaking but judging by the last one hour and 26 minutes and eight seconds i think you're a fantastic public speaker when did you get <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I think that I was kind of thinking about the ways in which, you know, I was taught to speak in school and we only ever had, the only real practice we had for public speaking was debating society. And I really just, I, I always thought I should be good at debating because, you know, I'm argumentative and I have ideas and I just, I always really bad at it because you had to like structure your argument in a certain way and it was really just decorative and you had to take on a certain cause and it would be like A, B, A, B. I just, I really couldn't stand the structure of it. And I think that it made me confused about how to speak publicly and how to like really articulate what I say verbally. And I remember just like, being, I remember being really bad at speaking for a long time and I honestly, I, as much as you just like complimented me, I still think that I'm a really bad speaker and I really like panic a lot of time with speaking because I'm always like, I might slur my words or I might be speaking too fast or I might not be saying things in like a certain coherent order and I kind of just wish that there was more practice just for speaking freelance because you know that's something which you know everyone has to do at some point, I mean at most at school you would have a presentation but you mm. would have everything written down and you pretend that you're not eyeing, literally eyeing the whole thing the entire time so yeah I kind of wish that there was more like workshops and opportunities to actually like practice speech and think about what makes good speech as well rather than just the kind of like public school contortions of like a debating club because that's not how people speak in real life and that's not how people speak on public platforms either like what they're doing at the Cambridge Union is not a model for how conversations happen in society so yeah I, I wish I was better educated on public speaking I, I completely agree. When I first did, I got asked that TEDx talk and I was absolutely terrified. And so I made, I like learned a script and I did this PowerPoint. It's the, one of the worst things I've ever done because I didn't really understand that like what makes a really good speech is actually just speaking from knowledge, trying to like draw, draw from things that you know. Speaking really freely, I guess like we have done on the podcast, such kind of the best 
the best way to listen to someone is listen to that natural flow of conversation. But it is such a hard skill. And I definitely find it even now that like I've done so many episodes of this podcast. And now I'm thinking about what I'm saying. It does make you really self-conscious and suddenly all the words jumble yeah. up and your brain can't think of what you're going to say next. Um, and it is something, as you say, that everyone's going to have to do, even if it's like it's your brother's wedding, you have to do a speech. Everyone at some point yeah. in their life is going to have to do a speech. And yeah, we are really ill-equipped, I guess. Yeah, it's a really necessary skill. And I think it's something that I think it's something that lots of people feel anxious about, you know, the the need to, you know, be able to speak publicly. And I remember I remember I think the time that I I think the time I really challenged it was that you know, I was it was my dad's funeral and I had written out a speech to write and I was really struggling with it and I just threw it away and I just spoke and I just spoke about my father free just freely and what I remembered about him. And I think that from now on, like with my speeches, I will always, I might write down like a few prompts to say, you know, I need to talk about this, but I just think I will ever write out a whole speech again, unless I really had to, because um, it will always feel unnatural. It will always feel really artificial and it will always feel like you're confusing and jumbling yourself. And I think that part of good public speaking is also trusting yourself and trusting your brain as well. Like even now throughout this entire podcast conversation, I mean, being honest, I was in bed before being like, shit, what am I going to say? But I've now just come here and I thought, you know, I have, you know, some thoughts and what I say can then spiral into other things. And, you know, um, the host will prompt me or ask those questions and that will inspire certain things. And so remembering that, you know, our brains hold so much more than some A4 sheets of paper ever can. And they our brains are the best resource um, for what we can say because, you know, we're always thinking to ourselves, we're always speaking to ourselves and in dialogue and in conversations with ourselves all the time. And speaking in public isn't all that different. It's just thinking about it at a certain vibrancy and at a certain consistency. Yeah, I, I was listening to a podcast the other day, actually, with a comedian who's talking about how she does improv classes. And she was saying, like you just said, it's really sweet. We walk around all day improvising to ourselves. We're just having a little chat in our head all day long. And we completely forget that, as you say, our, our brain's able to jump from idea to idea. And it makes perfect sense. Whereas, weirdly, writing and speaking is such different skills. And if you wrote something yeah. down that you were going to say out loud, it sometimes actually comes out really clunky because our brains make these really amazing segues that you couldn't necessarily get to in writing they kind of are twindly and tiny but when you're listening it flows very nicely um yeah and it yeah. is it's really free. I, I love to having these conversations because I think it's actually really fun to see where your brain goes it, but it's exhausting like we'll be really tired after this because your brain has just been like yeah going all over the shop I mean, I didn't imagine that we would be talking about influences in this conversation, but I actually quite enjoyed. I quite enjoyed that discussion. I thought it was good, and yeah, it does show the kind of like when your discussions are organic, it can take you to really exciting places, and when they're not really fixed down. So, I like the format of this, where you said, you know, just three things that you wish you learned in school, because it allows lots of different prompts, and it allowed me to even that memory of you know my my teacher who I was knew was a lesbian who I you know I haven't actually thought about that memory in a really long time but it just I was just reminded of it and so yeah I I like the creativity of the brain where it can take you rather than just being really like super prepared and being like I'm going to say this 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 yeah exactly because sometimes you listen to journalist interviews and and not to say that I'm better than other journalists because I definitely am not but you know when you would like oh my god they're about to say something really interesting and then the journalist goes okay so anyway and then has like a really specific question yeah. to ask and you're like oh my god if you just said like what did you mean by that? You could have had like an amazing conversation about the muffin they have for lunch or what, whatever it might be. Um, yeah. Well, 
that's an interesting thing that happened. Um, so last week I was interviewing some of the mayoral candidates for the Black Cultural Archive. So I interviewed the Labour, Green and um, Liberal Democrat candidate. And so Sean Berry was my best interview, the Green candidate, because it was just like a free flowing conversation. So what it was was that they, all of the candidates get like a set list of questions. Um, but for Sean Berry's and Louisa Porrett's conversations, the Green Lib- Liberal Democrat candidate, I was allowed to kind of follow up more. And so we ended up having more interesting conversation back and forth and I was able to like challenge and I asked questions that I wasn't expecting to ask them and also that they weren't expecting to be answered as well so you know mm. they were having to speak more organically so at some point they had to kind of break out of their script but the interview with Sidney Khan oh my god so it was shorter because he only had like a certain amount of time but also his team like sent us like a very fixed set list of questions and said you could only ask these seven questions and I was allowed to follow up and so there was a point where he said something like um his answer to like police brutality was more black police officers and I wanted to follow up on that I wanted to interrogate that and have a discussion you know is representation really what you're offering to young black Londoners and you know are more black police officers actually going to solve the issue or are they going to be a kind of like cosmetic diversity cover-up and that would have been a very interesting conversation for me to have with the mayor but because we were restricted to just having to you know keep into the seven questions I had to move on and I was really really frustrated actually um, because I wanted to be able to have that dialogue and I think it would have been better for the both of us and I also actually think he would have come across better as well if he had allowed that space to engage in that dialogue and actually present himself as someone open to challenge because you know what Sean Berry I challenged her on some things I was like you know I didn't like you know when this has been said by the Green Party so I challenged her on some things that the Green Party have said and allowed me and she was able to actually respond to it and give me an honest answer as well um, and I, I like that. I think that's so cr- and also you're right he would have I would be fascinated to see what he said about that because obviously like if you yeah. people and also people who perhaps haven't gone into this idea of like like abolishing the police or what that could really look like or why there's no such thing as like a rotten apple it's a rotten system etc it would have been interesting yeah. to see him take that on and it's a shame how the PR machine then sort of takes over because you don't know how much it's him going oh I don't want to answer anything or people going look we're going to completely like put up barriers so that people can't like catch you out and then it's just a shame because you're right yeah. what are we voting for then if we can't really get inside your brain and understand what you really think about things it kind of changes it just becomes a PR yeah. stunt again doesn't it it's like if I want the PR answer I will just read your manifesto but I just don't think that's what we I just don't think that's what interviews should be like anything that you know you've got prepared should already be out to the public and interviews should be able to they should be able to catch you off guard they should be able to ask you the difficult questions I don't think that I don't think a politician should be able to prepare for an interview beyond remembering their numbers or something like that or yeah. things to their manifesto but they should be able to have pre-prepared lines for everything that's said you know they should be open and I think that we would have much better conversations with politicians because also sometimes a politician comes off worse when they're trying to just repeat a line that they had set and it doesn't answer the question that they're being asked and they think it's fine because they're taking control but they just look stupid to most people and they look incompetent so yeah no I agree that's very interesting and I I'm gonna where, where can we get these interviews are they out yet your interviews yes yes they're on the black cultural archives youtube so you can watch them there with the labor green and liberal democrat candidate unfortunately i was meant to interview the conservative candidate sean bailey but i was taken off it and it was given to another journalist i reckon 
that they searched me up and they were scared. So that's what I'm thinking, but I, I don't know what, why. Um, I would have loved to see your interview because I'd be interested to see what accent he did if you interviewed him. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> His interview with ZZ Mills was, like, painful because it was like, where did you rent this accent from? I'm I sorry, actually had not to, how you speak. I had to pause it and get a YouTube video up to remind myself. I was like, am I going mad? Like, I'm like, does he normally speak? I swear he doesn't normally speak like this. So I got, like, yeah. another interview up and watched it. And then I played it back and I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What is yeah. going on? Oh. It was shocking. Well, we'll see how the results play out today. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> me. It's been such a pleasure. Sorry to keep you so long. Do you have anything that you wish oh, to... Oh, no, it's totally fine. Do you want to point anyone in the direction of anything? You've obviously got your book coming out in 2024, is it? Should I get that right? Yeah, so my book, Revolutionary Acts, which is a social history of black gay men, will be out in 2024. Um, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jace by Jason, which is a play on Mark by Mark Jacobs. That's the joke. Um, Got you. And I've, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also our digital archive, Black and Gay Back in the Day, which I run with Mark Thompson, who you should also check out because he does some really excellent work um, with HIV prevention. And he was recently on a BCPC2 programme called Saved by a Stranger, um, where he reunites with the therapist who helped him when he was a young man recently diagnosed with HIV. So, yeah. Wow. That's oh, all I have to plug. Amazing. I'm trying to think if I saw an article about that the other day. Maybe anyway, irrelevant. Um, it's been such a pleasure to chat to you. As I said, you only got on like we're recording this like four p.m. on Friday, which is probably like the worst time to be doing an interview. But I've actually really perked <laughs> up now because I feel like it was such a nice chat. So thank yeah, you. I really, really enjoyed great. it. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you, and thank you everyone for listening. I will see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.